One day, my co-founder just came to me and said, hey, I did the financials today, and I realized actually we got this two months of payroll left to go. And then we were like, okay, but we can sell a few more of these packages, right? Tapping on the government Yeah, and then very shortly after that, at the same time, the government grants were cut off. So the, the government changed its policy. And it just happened at the same time. I just remember how unlucky can we be that everything that could go wrong went wrong at the same time. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Ying Tongxia, also known as YC. YC is the co-founder and head of labs for Glintz, a Series D talent platform and solution in Southeast Asia founded in Singapore. YC is responsible for new products and market development at Glintz and currently leads the Vietnam marketplace. At 21 years old, he dropped out of Wharton Business School to run Glintz full-time building and leading the data, product, and engineering teams since 2015. Hi, YC. Nice to finally meet you today. I think I've seen a lot from Glintz ever since I started um, working in tech, so I'm very, very excited to get to know you and Glintz a lot better today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Really happy to share my story. So with everybody in the podcast, the first question is always, what was your childhood like? And so could you share a bit more about your early childhood, any key memories? I know you grew up in Singapore, but I think that's about all I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, my childhood, wow, okay. So I, I, I was born a, a Malaysian, uh, but raised and bred in Singapore. I've always been a very introverted child, and therefore I channel all my energies in the, into academics. I wasn't much of a popular student in class, more of a teacher's pet. Um, but I think somewhere along the way, I, I think around in my junior college period, I suddenly got this feeling that being in the system, the whole education system wasn't too fulfilling for me. I think that's where I started exploring, you know, business as a thing for me to do in the future, right? And I started going for business competitions. And I also started making friends with people who are not in my normal track. So I, I used to be on the very academic track. All my friends are like super smart academic students, very studious people. But I started making friends with this person who was like the, I would say the cool kid in, in school, right? He had a mohawk and he had a lot of girlfriends, even though we were in a boy's school. And his his name is, is Oswald. So he's my co-founder now. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember meeting him in an essay writing competition. And he was, he kept looking over at my, at my test script. And I asked him, why, why are you looking at my test script? And he said, I was analyzing my handwriting. I could tell that you have a lot of energy and you will be a great businessman in the future. So that's how we hit off. And we took part in a few business competitions together. I think after A-levels, we also started doing some projects together. And that's what kickstarted my journey. So I would say that that's my childhood in a nutshell. So were you a very academic student? Like, did you really love learning, et cetera, and then sort of get the realization that you're sort of in a system and it's not working for me? Or do you think you always sort of didn't feel like you fit in from the beginning? I think I was so shy. I remember being so shy. My mom told me that I would be bullied in kindergarten. But I remember there were two girls who used to bully me a lot in kindergarten. I was a super introverted kid. 
And I mostly went to school out of fear and I was just, I just follow whatever the teachers asked me to do. So I was a teacher's pet in that sense. I was very fearful. That was how I got started into the, you know, being very uh, studious because that's what everyone expected of me. I mean, somewhere along the way, I would say in around PSRE period, uh, lower secondary, I really started enjoying what I was doing well in, which was like exams and, and being good at academics. But then when I was going to JC, I then realized, hey, actually, maybe there's more to life than just this. And I started interacting with a few business mentors. I remember meeting this one uh, mentor who used to run an insect, like a pest control company. Oh. And he was like the most charismatic person I ever met, like more charismatic than all the teachers that I have. I met in my in my school life and so I was like oh that is the person that I want to be when I when I grow up yeah and then when you got hustled how old were you was that in your like a levels or jc like when was that in the timeline <laughs> I, I I mean I know about him since uh secondary three because oh. he was notorious <laughs> it's cool so you knew of him for a long time before you him. talked to him okay <laughs> exactly <laughs> I started talking to him in J, uh, at jc at j1 and then you said that you were getting into business competitions, but were there any other sort of hobbies or other interests that you're pursuing before that? Yeah, I would say the only other thing that I was very into was meditation. I would say when I was 14, my parents sent me to a monastery in Malaysia because my uncle just converted. He was like, we're into it. He's like, this is good for your kid. So they sent me to this monastery in the middle of nowhere in Malaysia. And I, be- I-, I became a monk for a-, a good two weeks. Um, and it was it was a very transformational life experience for me. And I would say there was life before that and life after that. I was a completely different person. And since then, I've been going back uh, you know, at once every few years. And, and meditation has been part of my life ever since then. When your parents told you they were going to send you to a monastery, were you like, okay with it? Or did you have any strong opinions against or for it? <laughs> I was very against it. But like I said, I was a very uh, agreeable kid <laughs> when I was young. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I just say, yeah, um, I, I, I don't like it, but my parents want me to go, so myself. Yeah. What, what, yeah, what, <laughs> yeah, what else can I do? What else can I do? They know best. <laughs> so do you remember what it was like at the monastery? Like when you showed up, like was there a progression of like, I don't like this. Now I'm starting to like this. Now I love meditation. What was it like in that two-week period of becoming a monk? I also thought it would take longer than two weeks. Yeah, it was um, quite jarring, actually, because, you know, I was in school, you know, I was the kind of kid who really just wanted to be, you know, ahead of my my studies. I didn't want to fall behind. So this actually aided a little bit into the school year. So when I went over, I came from like, you know, academics, exams, like teachers at schools, all the way to this remote place where there's nothing to do, right? They they don't allow you to bring any books over. You, you shouldn't be reading. You're none of your friends. I know not nobody there. Everyone's from the villages around. So it was a very jarring experience. I, what, are, what am I doing here? Am I falling behind on school? This is not contributing to my life in any meaningful way. And then they, they have a pretty strict... I remember the abbot there, uh, I first met him. He was a, eventually, I re- realized he was a very compassionate person, but he was very strict with us at first. And it turns out that this was a, this was a monastery um, camp. This is called the ordainment experience, but it was meant for adults, right? But my, my uncle sort of wriggled his, wriggled his way to getting me in because he knew the abbot. So I was the youngest person there, and everyone there was like 20, 30s, all the way to 70s. They have like gone through midlife crisis, realized something about life. That's why they were there. But then there was me. 
dreading every moment of it. And then they, they told me that you have to shave. And the worst part was they gave me a choice to, of whether to shave my eyebrows, right? Because the, the traditional way is that they shave all the hair on their face and their head. And I, I was like, no, of course not. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go back to school and pay my schoolmates. <laughs> but the, all, the, all the adults uh, did it and they said, yeah, you should really do it. Just learn to you know, give up on uh, your vanity. Uh, so under peer pressure, I did it. And it, I looked so different. So that first week was, I would say, pretty tough. I couldn't get my mind to settle down. I was constantly worrying about school, constantly worrying about how my friends would think about me when I, when I got back. Because of the eyebrows um, so, or because of something else? Oh, the eyebrows, yeah. Okay. I like, yeah, I look like an alien. <laughs> <laughs> so that first week was uh, unsettling. But I would say towards uh, the, the seventh day onwards, just through sheer number of hours that you put into sitting down, your mind just begins to concentrate and settle. Right. And I, I would say on the eighth day on, I felt a sense of peace that I never felt before in my entire life. I didn't know this was possible. And, and it just kept building on from there. And the highlight of the meditation retreat is they have a test experience for you, which is they'll send you to a cemetery nearby the monastery. And you're supposed to sit through the whole night, right? And face your fears, right? So I, I, I decided to do that after like nine days. I was like, uh, should I go? Should I not? This sounds crazy. But I decided to go. And I went through the whole night. Uh, it, was, it was really tough. There was a lot of fear. Uh, there was a lot of noises. And there was a lot of exhaustion. But I managed to do that. And yeah, that was, I think, one of the highlights for me. Like I could do a thing that uh, nobody in my school I thought would have done. So you were at like a graveyard alone or were the other people also there? Like the other soon-to-be monks, I guess. <laughs> it was a group of us, but the abbot made sure that we were spread far and wide. Oh. So <laughs> we clustered together because we were scared. It was dark and we had to, we had to like, we were gathered at the, at the, near the car, which brought us there. But then the abbot came around with a torchlight, I remember, and then he pointed at our faces and said, go far away. Go pick a tombstone and, and make sure you don't see any of your friends. So so that's what we did. <laughs> Do you remember what it was like on your last day when you had to leave? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was one one other experience that actually that was quite touching for me, which was in, in a way our parents came during the first day and then they left and then they came during the last day to pick us up. And during the first day before we officially ordained as monks, there was a forgiveness asking session where we apologize to our parents and ask for forgiveness for everything that we have done wrong to them uh, and thank them for everything they've done for us. And then on the last day, they sort of took us back as their own sons again after this whole experience. And to me, that was, that was something I never done for my parents, right? I, I did just, no, I was just always taking them for granted and never like consciously thank them or apologize them for anything. And that really brought tears to my eyes uh, back then. That was also on the last day. They listened to our stories. We tell them how we have changed, how I promise to be better people in the future. And as corny as that sounds, just having an official ceremony where we do that, we are forced to do that as, as men or as, as boys, really just opened my eyes to, you know, things that I know I should do, right? But I never just got around to doing. And do you feel like after going through that like two-week monk experience, do you feel like it really sticks with you as a person? Or are there times where you feel like, oh, the meditation, like the peace, the feeling of peace is kind of going away, which is why you go back like regularly? Yeah, it is. It's a little bit like fitness, right? So just like mental fitness. So like the first week after I came back, my mind was super calm, right? I was, I could handle anything in school, like all the exams that came up. 
I was fine. But of course, like after one week, it starts to seep away. And for the longest time, I think that was the insight I was missing, which was I always thought this was a permanent shift. And I was very disappointed when he went away. And that's why I kept going back like a drug addict and say, can I get back some of the cum? Um, but eventually I realized, yeah, the analogy for it, the best analogy is like exercise. You just got to keep a, a constant regime going. And of course, after a while, your base level of happiness starts to rise. It's almost imperceptible. But like if you look, I look back 10 years ago versus 10 years now, my base level of happiness is wildly different. In what way? Like, is your base level of happiness higher, lower? Yeah, so I would say like if I look, look back at 10 years ago, there's like a constant background worry of how am I looking to other people? Am I falling behind? Am I doing the best thing I could be doing in my life? And it was just like sucking energy in the background. And, and there's like ongoing, right? But right now, those voices are a lot softer right now. And I, I could more distinctly tell, okay, they are coming, let them go. And what you're left with is like a lot of space um, to like really just focus on you know, what you consciously want to do. I mean, you've been running Glints for over 10 years now. Do you think having that experience being a monk and like going back to find that peace and calm has actually helped you stay more resilient during like the 10 years? Because I feel like there are some stories of founders who don't make it, you know, 10 years on or more because they feel like tired or they get burnt out. Do you think that did contribute to being able to stay with Glints this long? Definitely, definitely. I, I would say I think that's one of the factors among many others. I mean, when I look back 10 years ago, I remember like last year, I think there was our 9 to 10th year anniversary. And I look back and told my co-founder, I, didn't, I can't believe that it's been 10 years. Right? I thought it was very normal for people to stick with something for 10 years because like, you just put in one day after the other and, and pretty quickly, it's already like 10 years has passed. But then when I started talking to fellow entrepreneurs and my brother recently started his own company in the Bay Area. And I started talking to investors. I realized actually it's, it's not that common for someone to start something from scratch and stick with it for, for that long. A lot of people I've spoken to, they gave up after like two, three years if it doesn't show any signs of working. And I, I recall my co-founder speaking to you know, one of his friends. He, was, he raised at a high valuation and eventually he decided to do a fire sale. And then when you asked him, why are you doing this, right? Aren't you like letting down your employees, your investors, everyone? He said, no, this is not worth my time anymore. Right. But I would say for us, there was a good four or five years. I would say the first four or five years was really the period of darkness. We didn't really didn't know what we were doing. We were just wriggling around in the dark, trying to look for a business model that works and we're trying lots of things, but none of them stuck. And for some reason, we went through it because for one, I didn't want to let down my friends uh, who are my co-founders and I, our investors, our early backers. And also... I have no other choice. I, I dropped out of school. So this is the only thing I could do. I was unemployable. And, and lastly, I would say meditation really helps because I just sort of enjoyed the process. I wasn't looking forward to like a, a big exit anytime soon. Every day was was enjoyable to me. There was some joy that I was getting out of it. So it was, it was pretty sustainable. And I think like stepping back. So I know that you sort of met your co-founders or got closer to them during the army, right? Or am I wrong? Yeah, that was when we started our first version of Glens. I knew Oswald in, in, in JC and we did a couple of things together. So we sort of built up a base over there. Our third co-founder joined us yeah, during the army period. And then how did you decide that like, hey, it's the three of us. We're not going to add any more people. We're not going to subtract any, any people. And the three of us are all going to do these like things together. How did you decide that you know three was enough and these were the right people? <laughs> 
<laughs> it was very un- unscientific. We were, we were noobs at what we were doing. So it was just like, okay, we need a salesperson that is Oswald. And then we need someone who's good at operations. There was the telco founder. And then we need someone who can do the tech. And there was me. And I think that was good enough to go, get started. But looking back, I think that was, um, we, we rushed too far into it. So one of our, the third co-founder, he eventually uh, left us, I think five years into the journey. It was an amicable split, but I think on hindsight, we, we didn't, like we didn't spend enough time building relationships before just jumping into um, the startup. Because in, in many ways, like a lot of people told me this and I thought it was very true. They told me like being co-founder is like being in a marriage, but without the sex. <laughs> so you, you spend like all your hours together, right? And you are supposed to stick with each other for, you know, five and in our case, 10 years. Right. And if there's no dating period before that, right, as I as I have it us, it's it's very easy for things to go all right. Yeah. And then when you're building things together, how did you know that like, you know, Oswald was actually the right salesperson, you're actually the right tech person, et cetera? Like, how did you decide on like the skill sets and that you were the one with the correct skill set? Because what if, you know, um, I'm a co-founder and I think I should be the salesperson, but I'm actually like not a good yeah. salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that was what happened to us. That's very common. But we were the right people for the job because nobody else wanted to take it. We could we couldn't convince anyone else who was good to join us at the in the first couple of years. So we were the best person for the job by definition. There was a little bit of shift in between uh, between us. So, for instance, I was doing a little bit more operations and process design in the beginning, and then eventually I realized I was super bad at it, and that's why I switched. Roles to, to doing tech um, because I had more interest in it. And the other founder, he was doing tech and he, had, he hated it. He hated every moment of it. And we just put him in it because he has just some prior WordPress experience. So it was it was very scrappy in the first few day, uh, first few years. We just went into it, did things and figured it out. And it was also tough because, you know, I mean, we were like fresh out of, of NS, right? We were like 20, 21. We were just figuring out what we want. We didn't really know what we we're doing either. Uh, we still didn't know what we wanted out of life. So there's a lot of things that's like shifting in, in, in the whole process. It's really messy. I guess at the beginning, it's always messy anyway. As long as you have somebody who can do it, it doesn't matter if they're good at it. As long as they can get the job done, I guess. But maybe yeah. like a few <laughs> years down the line, that's when you're like, okay, wait, um, am I really the right salesperson? Because at this point, um, it's getting really difficult. I guess that's what actually happens, right? At the beginning, it doesn't really exactly. matter who does it. At some point, it does start to matter. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. You just want to survive another day and then really get the product market fit. And and then when you really get to like your first round of capital or you earn your first, you know, batch of revenue and then you started looking for professionals, then that's where you realize, whoa, the, the pros are really good at this. I was nothing, but it got it was good enough to get started. So like after the army, you went to Penn. I'm just wondering, like, did you get into Penn before or after the army? I'm not that familiar with how Singapore works. Like, when do you get the acceptance letter? <laughs> I got it in the middle of my national service uh, period. Sorry, no, I, I actually got it before. I, I went into early decision. That's what I, I think that was what it's called. But I think that was part of the problem because before Army, we were like 18, right? We didn't know what we wanted and we didn't, we know nothing about the schools. So the reason why I picked Penn uh, was because I wanted to go join Wharton. And Oswald told me, because Oswald told me, right, that, Wharton is like the best business school in the world. Uh, and then he showed me some videos where people were like, where the students were like talking about how great Pan, uh, Wharton was. And then I didn't realize business has a very different meaning from what I wanted. 
business where they actually meant more like finance, uh, investment banking, consulting. But where I was, I was more interested in entrepreneurship, right? Um, so I just applied for it, got got into early decision, and I say, okay, might as well. So I, I took it. It was right before national service. And then, like you were building these things with your co-founders during national service, and then after it ended, how did you decide that we're actually going to continue this as a real business after national service ends, or was it not actually like a formal decision yeah. at that point? It was really messy back then. I remember we uh, we actually started a version of Glens that didn't work out during national service, and we got featured on the news, right? Which actually was a terrible mistake because we were not supposed to do anything for profit outside of national service. So we, I remember one day the the papers came out. I was very happy in the morning, but then very quickly. I remember being in the camp and one of the officers from the, the, the HQ came down and said, hey, I want to speak to you. I went to his office, the newspaper articles on his desk. And he had that on one side and on the other side, he had some rules and regulations uh, <laughs> paper. And he pointed to one line and said, did you know that when you're serving the national service, all your time and energy belongs to the army, right? You're not supposed to make any profit as of training, right? We are called that moonlighting. But then what saved that was, was that there was a very specific, Lying in the rules and regulations that said you're not supposed to make any profit. But we were making no profits. We're like, <laughs> it was a loss making project that we were doing due to incompetence. Uh, and we just, and I told you, sorry, we were actually not making any profits. It's more like a, you know, a fun project that my friends are doing. And that's what got us out of trouble because I think that would have gotten us. There were people who went to detention barracks because they were running a side business during NS. There was like a close shave during the national service period. But then we quickly got out of it, made sure that we were, you know, stayed out of the limelight too. We, we ORD'd. And then after that, we went through an accelerator program. It's called JFDI. Uh, it's no longer around, but it was it was quite a popular uh, accelerator program back then, 2014. Um, and we went through that, really just not knowing what we want to do next. We just wanted some guidance, some direction, and also some, some importance that other people actually knew about our project. And we went through that. And we just followed through the motions and we started to talk to customers as they told us to. Ended up with a demo day, uh, which is when you present to investors and they took, put in some seed round. And we went through that and we took the seed round money while we know that we are going to universities in, in, in the US. All three of us are going to different universities, right? And we're going to be in two codes, two time zones. And it was like, we didn't just, we didn't think it through. Like we just hoped that, you know, the best could happen. We could raise a lot of money and could go to school and everything will be fine. We can IPO by the end of, <laughs> by, the, by the time we graduate. Yeah. Uh, of course, <laughs> in reality, it was much more cruel. Raise the money, but it was, there were investors who, who had conditions that we had to do this full time, right? We couldn't run this along school. And when we went to school, we did one semester and, and realized this was working out. Like both my school and the startup was failing terribly at the same time. Yeah. Were you actually failing at school? Because I thought I read some article where you had like a 4.0 GPA or like, am I wrong? <laughs> or were they just yeah, like, was it. <laughs> <laughs> did they just really like you and say like 4.0? <laughs> yeah, there was a good friend of mine <laughs> who wrote the article. I actually didn't check my GPA, but I was I was quite sure it was in 4.0. <laughs> um, yeah, it was much lower. I couldn't bring myself to check it. And I, I left school within one semester. <laughs> the article said something like you are good at both school and the startup. And that it said like you are humble, etc. It's like the article, <laughs> like whoever wrote it truly loves you from the bottom of his heart. 
to this day, I'm thankful to him. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still keep in touch until now? You and the guy who wrote the article? I think he's from Singapore too, right? Yeah, unfortunately not. I'm not sure we were doing a talking about the same article, but it was one that was written by a schoolmate that I had met in Penn. He went on to do uh, angel investing as well as um, he went down the, the investing route. So we didn't keep oh. in touch because we were on two sides of it. <laughs> but still in a similar industry. That's pretty cool. So you're actually having a difficult yeah. time running the startup and maintaining your GPA it's and nice. handling campus life. Because I, when I was reading the article, I thought that you were like superhuman. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's how PR works. <laughs> 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 I was feeling at all three. I mean, like it was a new environment. I've never been, uh, I've never been to the US before. It was a very jarring environment. They were everyone there was like dressed in suits uh, and they are slick, slick back. Even hair if and it everyone... was undergrad. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was even even though it was undergrad. So okay, you get to the two classes of students, right? They were like one group of students who were because I was I was there like I was twenty one already. I went through NS, but they were like all the seventeen year olds who who was who were like into partying, super immature not my kind of vibe and then there was another group of students who were just like they were tracked to investment banking and consulting they were wearing suits to, to school they spoke in a certain way and that was just not me i didn't quite feel like i belonged I, nobody was like talking about being a tech entrepreneur building things being scrappy yeah i just fell out of place i see it and then when did you decide like okay it's time for me to actually drop out <laughs> i know you have that clause in the <laughs> investment but when did you decide that it is time? Yeah. It was after, I remember there was after one one semester. There were, there were a few reasons. One was my, my co-founder, Oswald, he was certain that he was dropping out. So the moment he he went to first week of school and took a few lectures, he was like, this is not for me. And he said, I'm going to drop out. So he told me that. And uh, that was one of the reasons. The second thing was, I took a few exams. I was not quite feeling it. I was not quite feeling the whole vibe of, this, of, the, of the place. And also, we were trying to run the startup uh, through an uh, employee we brought on in Singapore. And she was she was great at what she did. But it was just super hard when all the founders are overseas and she's the only person there. And we got no nothing really set up back then. It was like a... I remember back then it was an internship website. And nobody knew what we were all doing. She was also very fresh to the, you know, the, 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 the work scene. So nothing was kind of working. Like nothing was moving. And I realized this can't go on. So these two things came in together, and after when I was nearing the first semester, I said, "Okay, I gotta, I gotta drop out." So I went to talk to my counselor, and I was expecting a lecture, you know, like you know, how dare you? But actually, they were they were super chill about it. They just told me, "Okay, you gotta, you know, you just gotta complete your studies within eight years if you want to even ever get a degree." Um, but otherwise, yeah, you do what you do what you want. And I think there was one of the big differences between the U.S. culture and Singapore. Yeah, they just have give you a lot of freedom. Oh, that's interesting. You could still come back within eight years. Yeah, I, I've long passed. <laughs> I've long passed. <laughs> You're long passed, but that's that's a pretty big window. I thought it would be like you know two, <laughs> three, four years only. <laughs> yeah, I know. So you just had to graduate in eight years. For us, he's, he's he went to Berkeley. They were even more liberal about it. They say as long as you're alive, you can come back at any time. <laughs> as long as you're alive. Your <laughs> Yeah. I guess he might know what also is doing at 60. <laughs> I know. He, he, he always kept joking that he would go back when he's 80. <laughs> <laughs> so when you went back to Singapore, obviously you started working on Glenn's full time. Could you give us like a look into like the early days and hopefully like a story that you haven't shared mm, before, like of what 
things look like, some good or bad story, but something from the early days. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when I first came back, I was very unsure whether this was the right thing to do. So I think one thing I didn't share was I was also on a scholarship uh, and I had to break the bond to come back. And oh, so you had to pay for I that, right? Came back and yeah, exactly. So yeah, that was actually one of the toughest part of the decision. I went straight to the scholarship board, explained my decision. They were disappointed, of course, but ultimately understandable. Then the, the, the reality hit when they presented me the bill of what I had to pay back. And it was in, I it was 90 plus thousand dollars. Um, and I didn't have that kind of money. So uh, I had to talk to my dad, right? And had to borrow some cash from him to pay back. And that was when it became very real for me. I was like, I, my dad, you know, we are not a well-to-do family, right? 90K doesn't just come about, doesn't just lie around the table. Yeah. And he was going through some hard times back then too. So, so I, I remember when I took, told him that, you know, I had to pay it back. I mean, he 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 did it very willingly, but I, from that on, the pressure was really on. I I I, I said I really have to make this work. Yeah, and then from from that point on, it still took us three four years to make it work, like to bring in our first like real dollar. Um, so it was a it was a really tough journey. And um, we 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 rented like really scrappy offices. Um, we hired like really junior people, like fresh grads, to to get started. And like all of us were on the road trying to figure out how to how to sell whatever product we had. There was one moment um, that I still remember till today because it was just really painful and it was also, I think, the seed of what made us persist to we managed to find product market fit. I guess in a sense, like your dad also invested in you, like invested 90K. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, was a, he was a silent partner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Without him, all the other investors probably wouldn't have made it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So I was wondering as well, like you said, that it took a few years for you guys to make your first real dollar. And I think this is a very real experience for both startups. Like you don't really make a consistent amount of money, like a predictable amount every month yeah. until several years on. So how did you guys feel like, okay, um, this is the right direction? And how would you know, like, okay, maybe we're not in the right direction when, you know, the goal, which is making a little bit of money consistently is still far off. So how would you sort of navigate that? Yeah. I think all three of us dropped out and there was this steely sense of determination. We just got to make it work no matter what. So back then we were running our internship portal. And of course, we we started you know, looking at how other internship portals are monetizing. And we could quickly realized that none of them were monetizing because it was pay for interns. Um, and we were in Singapore, right? And the Singapore, mar- Singapore market was just tiny. So uh, a few of our investors um, told us that, you know, you really got to look at Indonesia, right? Otherwise, you're not, never going anywhere. And I'm going to pull out if you don't grow, grow big enough in a couple of years. So one of the things that we did was we expanded to Indonesia very quickly. That, uh, and and we, we went, we flew down, then we, you know, tried to figure out the market, spoke to people on the ground and immediately tried to hire our first uh, general manager over there. Yeah, so so there was one one area that had some momentum, right? So that kept us going a little bit. But we also had to get some cash flow in the meanwhile to survive. So we did a lot of things that was quite different from our main business. Right? We did a lot of, at one point we did this website development for clients, which is nothing to do with recruitment, just to get some cash, right? And remember there were some government grants that we could tap on that made it an easier sale. So we became 
uh, we became like experts in how to help this uh, SME business uh, type of grants. We studied the grants in and out and knew how to, how to get it. So that was one of the things that we did. We also did a bit of white labeling. Like we had an internship portal and we offered some schools to build a version for them. And they also pay us a, a few thousand dollars for that. So it was like, like this kind of scraps and pieces that we put together to keep us going. And then we also had a, 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 you know, some seed round money from GFDI and a little bit before that. So they also kept us going a little bit. Yep. So it was like cash flow from this side of things and then a little bit of momentum on, on Indonesia's side. Yeah. And that, that was what like um, kept us going both financially and also morale-wise. In a sense, do you feel like it was less of like, okay, all of the signs, like like the business numbers are saying like, this is the right direction. Do you think it was less of that and more of like, let's just figure it out, like no matter what. And you think, do you think it was more of that attitude yeah. that kept you guys going? Rather than the business metrics themselves, exactly. It was more of the. It was more the latter. Like we really got to figure it out, because I would say the really getting into knowing what business metrics to to look out for, what business we are really in, uh, what are the what's the crux of the business model. Right? I think that really got sunk into us only from the fourth, fifth year onwards. Before the first four or five years, we were just running around really like headless chickens. I, I know that I think back about it, and we were just pushed along by this sense of. We have got to make it work and we are in this together. Yeah. Those are the only, only two things that kept us going. I think for like many founders, they experience a lot of near death experiences throughout the course of their startup. I think I read before that you had one sort of near like the three year mark. Did you guys have other near death experiences yeah. before and after as well? Uh, I would say that was the, that was the most searing one. Um, because by then we had a little bit of a uh, we had a bit of a team built up. I remember it was like uh, around eight and nine people. And one day my co-founder just came to me and said, "Hey, I did the financials today, and I realized actually we got just two months of payroll left to go." Uh, and 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 then and then we were like, "Okay, but we can sell a few more of these packages, right? Tapping on the government grants." Yeah, and then but then the next, I think very shortly after that. At the same time, the government grants were cut off. So the, the government changed its policy. And it just happened at the same time. I just remember how unlucky can we be that everything that could go wrong went wrong at the same time. So very quickly, we were down to two months of, of runway. And we had to raise some money to get us over the hump and keep everybody on the on, on the team. So that's what also had to do, right? He had to go out quickly, raise money on based on whatever metrics that we had, which was not much. And then on the other hand, we had to figure a way to tell all our employees. And that was nerve-wracking for us because we were first time, all first-time managers. We had never dealt with tough situations like this before. It was it was one thing that three of us, you know, could could be laid off and, and find another another thing to do. But it was another thing when like eight people like these are fresh grads, they trusted in us, and then now we have to possibly lay them off. I remember there was like one month left in the payroll. We, it took us a, us a month to like figure out what the message to say was. And by, it was like a month. We got everybody to a house and we told them the news. Like there's only one month of payroll left, right? Uh, if you guys feel like this is not, this is too risky for you, it, it is okay, totally okay that you decide to find something else in this one month left. But otherwise, if you want to stick around, we'll do our best to make sure that we can raise the money, right? And make sure there's no disruption to your payroll. Yeah, but if that if or, or if nothing goes comes through, there might be a temporary cut in your in your payroll. So we did that message. It was really hard. Table is silent, and then finally everybody just say, uh, "Yes, I will, I will, I will stick on." Right? 
Oh, everyone. The time being. Yeah, everybody. I'm not sure whether, yeah, maybe it was peer pressure or <laughs> I don't know. Um, but everyone decided to stick on with us. Um, and eventually we did manage to raise the money. Just two weeks before the payroll ran out, uh, the money came in. And from then on, it was such a painful experience uh, that all, all those bundles of stress and disappointment in ourselves that we saw to ourselves that we really had to get someone who's good at finance to come in in the next round, right? So, so that's one thing where we hired our first finance person to really look at the cash flow, yeah. Would you say that like for a first-time founder who doesn't really like have much experience running a business or being a part of a business before, like similar to you guys, it was probably one of your first few jobs, et cetera. Yeah. Would hiring a finance people, I mean a finance person, if there was none in the co-founding team, be one of the top recommendations you have in the early days? <laughs> <laughs> I would say or, maybe not. Maybe no. Yeah. Would it just be like watch your finances? <laughs> exactly. I would say the main thing you need to get right is just some accounting fundamentals, which we were not on top of. Like I, I remember we were mixing up like profit and, and cash flow. So there was there was one of the problems. Like we had some revenue that was coming in, but were, the cash was not hitting our bank until a few months later. And that was missed. And, and we, we actually didn't know that. I mean, I went to business school. That was one of the things that we were taught. But we were just not on top of it, partly because we lost track of what was important. I think that's one of the dangerous things about first-time entrepreneurs that you are, you're naive, right? And that gets you going. That gives you a lot of courage and a lot of momentum. But you also don't really know what's important and what's not. Right, so we focus on a lot of unimportant things like PR, getting our message out there, and then we miss out some of the basics, like you know, tracking your cash flow. So I think I would just say maybe the advice is more of really know the really important things. In this case, it was cash flow. Yeah. And when you guys are starting, you were in your early twenties and first time managers. What would you say would be like your tips for other people who are maybe starting their first startup with no prior job experience or minimal job experience and don't really know how to manage people at all? Like, what would your tips be for them? You know, even after you get people into the company, like you've hired them, what do you do next? Like, how do you manage these people, especially if they're older than you, more experienced than you? Yeah. And all those things. I think the first thing that you have to recognize is that you're stuck as a manager for the first few years. And all of us do, because it's a very unnatural uh, behavior. Even if you're a natural born leader, there are certain, it's, it's like a little bit of difference between a leader and a manager, right? Because a manager has some very specific um, duties, like holding your team accountable for results, right? Uh, training your team, making sure you hire well, and you're so to fire when the time calls for it. And these are all very unnatural behaviors they were not trained for in school. So I would say one of the things you have to get around is that you definitely suck as a manager for the first few years. I didn't want to recognize that when I first started. And there was one of the mental blockers that was blinding me to some of the obvious things I was not doing well. So for instance, I was actually still acting like an individual contributor or at most like a, a lead when I was supposed to manage to me or uh, when they needed unblocking, I will just come in, right? But actually I realized what really good managers do is they proactively identify the outcomes they want the team to achieve. They understand what the gaps of the teams are and they just plug in those gaps before they really happen, right? So they do a lot of ensuring that the message is clear to the team and they adapt their management style to what the team members are, right? So some people actually need a little bit more guidance. You give that to them. Some people just need a, a general direction. You give that to them. But then all along the way, you got to like regularly check in and make sure that they are on track 
right? Sometimes they just need unblocking, but other times they do need motivation. And then other times, some people actually do need a pressure, right? To get them fired up. And then the last thing is that you got to get good at judging what people are like. You sort of have to, when you're hiring, you actually are running sort of like a simulation of how they are going to perform at your at what you want them to do. And that is a really hard thing to do because people are very different in different contexts. So I think that you just get better at a time where you just run through a lot of cases, right? You, you hire people, you put them in certain contexts, you see how they change. And then over time, you, gotta, you start to build like a pattern recognition uh, machine in your brain about how people perform. But it's never 100% correct. You still make a lot of mistakes. And then therefore, it comes to the next part, which is when you recognize that some a person is really not the right fit, regardless of all the training and coaching you do, then you got to have the courage as well as the skill to let the person go in a way that's compassionate, but still rigorous. And it sounds very simple, but there are lots of like things to do, uh, lots of skills over there. And then courage is actually a big thing that uh, I think a lot of first-time managers lack too. And then when it came to deciding like, okay, how much should I pay this person? When do I promote somebody? Yeah. Or how do I structure my team? Where did you learn those things? Did you lean on to certain, uh, I don't know, entrepreneurs you knew? Did you ask your VCs? Did you look in the internet or books? Like, how did you learn those things? <laughs> or did you just wing it all and like above. decide it together with Oswald? <laughs> <laughs> all of the above. We, we, we winged it at first and we realized uh, and we made a lot, a, couple, uh, a lot of bad mistakes. Yeah, we didn't really learn it from people who have done it before. Um, and the nice thing is that all these are soft problems. We didn't have to reinvent them. So actually, people from big companies, right, HR, um, they have the frameworks for thinking through this. We took that and then we struck it down for for where we are. Got it. And then I was wondering as well. So you've been running Glens for 10 years with your co-founder. The company has gone through multiple stages. I mean, you can see that through the funding rounds. And I, I'm sure you know that there are other stages in between those things. I think one of the biggest questions I have for you is, you know, how do you evolve as a co-founder as the company scales? Because, you know, the skill sets needed at the beginning, the middle, and now are completely different. Yeah. How did you develop your skills? as the company scale, and how would you know that, you know, it's a different phase now, I need to be somebody else, I need different skills, like I need to play a different role. This is actually one of the hardest parts uh, that I had to go through personally in the journey, uh, because there was a part which you needed a little bit of self-awareness, right, as well as awareness of what the company needs. So, so having the inside view of what the company needs, right, that is one thing. And so the outside view, which is, you know, at Every company sort of goes through very predictable stages uh, when they are a certain size of headcount and revenue, right? The kind of roles that you need to run a certain headcount is actually quite predictable regardless of industry. So we spoke to a lot of people outside uh, from other companies um, to figure out, you know, when, what kind of profile do you actually need at different, at different points in time? So I would say at the very beginning, it was very scrappy. We were, you know, pretty much individual contributors. Um, we just had to really make and produce things very, very fast and be able to sell them personally. And there was two product market fit. Then after that, you are you enter sort of a scale-up phase. You found something that works and then you're responsible for making that work at a bigger scale. And that's where you start hiring people, right? Uh, and you start having a little bit of uh, managerial levels be below you. Uh, and that's where I had to start picking up uh, managerial um, skills. But I'm still managing a team, right? A functional team or a small team are responsible for their direct results. But then when a company goes past that stage, then you start to have to play more of an executive role 
where it's you're you're partly contributing to the you know the strategy of the company, which is easier for founders because we're there from the start. But the tricky part then is you know managing an executive team, which is quite different from managing you know line managers or managing individual contributors. Um, and you also have to figure out is that something that you you want to do. So for me, I went, personally went through that journey. Uh, I was a CTO for the beginning. We brought in the first team, and I, I could I could do that. I, I enjoyed the process. But at a certain point, when the engineering team reaches like across thirty people to forty to fifty people, the nature of the job fundamentally changed. I was just, I wasn't just running. I wasn't just running the engineering team alone. I was actually responsible for how it fits in the company strategy. There's a little bit of outward facing role I had to play to. Sometimes I was also investor facing. Right, and I also need to learn how to work with other executives. So there was a part where I realized actually this might not be too close to what I actually wanted to do. It took a lot of self reflection uh, to realize that uh, I really wanted to be you know closer to the to the action, right, to the market. So uh, that was when I decided last year uh, to start looking for a replacement. Right, so I, we brought in someone who was very experienced um, to take over my role as a CTO, and I went back to the zero to one phase in Vietnam. And that's why I'm here in Vietnam, trying to get the market starting again. What were like the biggest signs every time you hit a new phase? That's like, hey, it's a new phase. I have to change the way I'm doing things. Like, is it more of a sign like, hey, I don't really feel happy doing what I'm doing? Or is it a sign in terms of like the business size? Yeah, you have to get good at I'm getting better at recognizing when, when that is happening. But in my case, and in a lot of cases I see in my company, people only realize that a little bit too late. Usually it's like six months or up to a year too late that we are in the, in the wrong role. But some of the signs that you can feel is like, you know, you're not energized by the role anymore. And then when you're not energized by the role, it starts to show up in the results. You, your team members, starts, your, you know, your manager NPS starts dropping, people give you some feedback. And then eventually after a year, you you, you, you don't see the results in your function, your department, uh, in your team. Um, that's a very lagging indicator. But the first, I would say the leading indicator is that you don't feel energized by the Okay. And then, I mean, you said that you knew Oswald ever since you were in, I think, secondary school. Yeah. But you've also known him for like over 10 years as a co-founder. Yeah. So I would also want to ask you like a similar question, like knowing him for so long and being his co-founder for so long, how have you seen him scale and evolve as like a co-founder and CEO throughout like the different stages of the company? What do you think he's like done really well that you would, I guess, want to share for anybody else who might be Going through like a similar role as like Oswald. I think he has scaled much better than I have. Uh, he's changed much better, uh, evolved much more than I than I have. I mean, first of all, he was starting from a, a base where he was like this truant uh, <laughs> uh, kid in school, <laughs> where he was uh, not, not, he didn't have the best reputation as a best student, right? Um, Rick, but he was a creative person. He was very um, good at people skills. He was very good at EQ. I think there was one, fundamental trend that's been common all throughout this 10 years of journey. And he has very strong determination. I think he he was the one who actually kept us going in a, in a few points where I, I wanted to give up. And he was like, no, I think really this is this is this is lake. go somewhere. So that stayed that stayed pretty much the same. Where he has changed is in the way he manages people and the way he deals with the board. Right. In the beginning, I would say we are all really raw and fresh at this. For him, he in the beginning, he was more of a, you know, firstly, he was very good at sales, right? Doing the sales himself, then bringing on people who could do sales. Uh, and he was really good at that function. But over time, he had to learn how to work with the other functions as the CEO. 
right? And that's really, really where I saw the growth in him. He was not a finance person, as we could have tell from the near-death experience. He was not good. He doesn't like going diving too deep into the details and getting into the nitty-gritty of the weeds of things, right? And he's not so he doesn't really enjoy, you know, just running a repeated process over and over again. He 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 likes, you know, things to change a little bit, right? That he likes things to have some innovation, some bonus. I think that's in his DNA. But over time, he recognized that that's what the company needs in certain parts of the business, right? And he worked with people who are really strong at that and complement uh, them on, the, on those fronts. So that's one area that he has evolved. And then the other side of the picture is also how he has uh, worked with the board, uh, worked with our t- uh, group of investors. Uh, one thing he has gotten very good at is being very discerning about who do, who do we bring on onto our cap table and who do we bring on to our, onto our board. Um, and, and and it just comes to experience. I mean, in, at first we were anyone who who was willing to give us money. I think we were very happy to consider because that's the position that we were in, and we were so didn't know how to tell who from who. But over time, we we did learn through some painful experiences that you know who you bring on to captive is very important because partly because it's quite irreversible. So he got him very good at you know evaluating you know, the quality of people that he works with, um, and then after bring them on, how to treat them as long term partners. Yeah, so those are two two yeah evolutions I've seen going going through, and then the third thing is I mean as we as we grew we brought on more and more senior people and the way you you interact with them you sort of lead them is also very different, and that's also another point I've seen him handle very beautifully. I'm wondering like what it looks like at the ten year mark going through all of these ups and downs together. I'm sure. There have been a lot of conflicts. I mean, hopefully not, but I'm sure they they have happened and hard conversations. So yeah. I think I've seen this quote somewhere where people talk about like, you don't want to start a business with your friend yeah. because if you end up as like business partners, co-founders, the conflict, the difficulties might just break your friendship. But I think at this point, you guys are still together after 10 years. I don't think that friendship has broken. So what are your tips for founders on dealing with like hard conversations, founder conflict? And making sure that, you know, you're able to be very honest with, I, I guess, your, your feedback and the difficulties without shattering the friend or co-founder relationship that you have. Yeah, we definitely have our fair share. But the funny thing is we had a lot more of this in the beginning uh, than towards the end. Because I think in the beginning, we were transitioning from friends to partners. So we had to discover values about each other that we didn't know about before. After five, six years, we know each other, like, you know, what we care about, we know each other in and out. We can, like, complete each other's uh, sentences. We know where we are each other, I think. So it becomes a much smoother experience. I would say, yeah, so that's what I say about um, relationships and working relationships especially, so that they compound over time, right? So you find some somebody that you really jive with and click with, really stick with that person for the long term because the really great part of the partnership really comes towards the end after you work through the initial kings. So that's one thing I would say. Yeah, about the friends, friendship part of things, I can definitely see how they, they could have gone off the rails. And I would say Oswald and I, we are the survivorship bias, right? Out of other friends that could have worked with that wouldn't have worked out. Because it's, very, it's one thing to be friends. It's another thing when money and ambition and a company is involved and other employees are involved. So you have to make sure that you, first of all, have very aligned fundamental values. That's one thing. The other thing that I see where a lot of such partnerships go go off the rail is that they avoid the hard conversations. 
Uh, and I think one of the quotes that Oswald shared with me was, you as a person is defined by the number of hard conversations you're willing to have. And we have really embraced that at our company. We call that uh, elephant hunting, like we hunt for the elephant in the room. Uh, we always try to fish it out right from the beginning. And, and if two of us have anything that's left, I'd say we make sure that we find a time to really talk through it. But at the same time, still preserving the positive intent. That is the safety net. They make sure that all these conversations can go go well, right? Yeah. So yeah. So those are the few things, right? Having hard conversations with positive intent. Uh, once you find the right person, stick with them for a long time because it compounds. It really does. And then realizing that you need fundamental values uh, when you transition from friendship to partnerships, uh, because those are different kinds of relationships. And then your role now is like head of labs, and I think it's like Vietnam lead. Yeah. What does head of labs mean? Is that head of all new projects? <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to find a fancy name, fancy title that captures what I really enjoyed doing, which was innovation. But uh, at, at this point in time, actually, that just means that I'm leading the Vietnam marketplace because that's what the company needs at this point. Uh, so I was leading the marketplace here. We had been running it for a couple of years, but it was only in uh, this year that we wanted to put more effort into running it as a, as a dedicated job portal for Vietnam and really just uh, play to win instead of just play to play. Yeah, so so that's what, that's what it actually means. <laughs> and what is it like being in Vietnam and trying to lead the office there? What's life like in Vietnam and what's like the landscape there like? You know, coming from Singapore, I'm sure it's very different. Coming from Indonesia, it's also very different. Like startup side is, I think, a little small, a lot smaller. Exactly. The life is also very different <laughs> and the language barrier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, um, yeah, we, there was a period of time where I was running the engineering team in Singapore. And everything was actually getting a little comfortable in Singapore, right? Uh, we sort of know where we're going. Singapore is very, you know, very predictable marketplace. And I was looking for something different. So when we brought on the new CTO uh, and we were doing a reorganization, we, we say, hey, actually, you know, you are a zero to one kind of person. Um, Indonesia is, is, is going strong. Um, we have some strong leaders there. But in Vietnam, Vietnam is going fast. Uh, we need somebody uh, dedicated for the platform side of things. right? So why don't you go down there and, and, get, and take it over and see how fast you can grow it? I would say it was a whole learning experience for me. Firstly, the language is different, right? Different language is hard to pick up for me. And then the market dynamic is very different. It's different from Singapore. It's also different from, from uh, Indonesia, right? The compat is much more competitive over here. We have very strong uh, local competitors in the job portal scene. But on the other hand, people are also more, employers are so more willing to pay. And then coupled with that, this was, this was a year of economic downturn. Right? People are hiring less, right? So all these confidence factors came into make for a very interesting interesting dynamic for me to do it to jump right into so that's one that's on that's one side of things um but then for on the other hand we are not starting from scratch right we had a existing business in vietnam already right so for glints we run three main businesses so one is the online job portal but we also run a local headhunting um a business and also cross-border business meaning we help singapore or hong kong companies to build out teams in, in vietnam right so we also brought in a new uh, Vietnam GM to, to run the offline headhunting as well as the cross-border business starting this year, right? So I was also uh, figuring out together with her, uh, how could we work together to have some collaboration between the two sides of the business, right? To, so that we can you know, run it together in a united front. Yeah, so, so all these things, I think it's, it's very fascinating. And also not to mention that on the ground, things are so very different 
when I even like crossing the road is a learning experience for me in Vietnam. <laughs> Why? Is yeah, it like I, a I lot of motorcycles? Yeah, it's like a ton of motorcycles. Uh, they don't really have traffic lights that they obey by a oh. lot. And it's uh and people go like the motorbikes go in all sorts of directions. So you just have to be confident in in your pace and you just have to put your hand up, walk through it, and people will avoid you. <laughs> Is this your first time living overseas apart from your time in the US? Or have you lived overseas for prolonged periods of time during other points in your role at Glens? Yeah, I was to say maybe a, li- a little bit in Jakarta when I was building up uh, the offshore team over there. Uh, yeah, then after that, Vietnam. And what's like day-to-day life like in Vietnam for you? Is it different from like how your day-to-day life on a workday would look like Singapore? Like your routine, the way you manage people? Yeah, when I'm overseas, actually my life gets like to the to the to the bare essentials because uh like you're away from your family you're away from your usual group of friends right so there's uh it becomes very simple for me like i i just you know come to work exercise and then work with the team and then at the and i try to go out and meet new people right uh, in the in the circle and then that's it so surprisingly life becomes very uh disciplined over here but after a while, it gets a little bit monotonous. So I, I, I try to spice it a little bit sometimes by trying to explore new places. But I always joke to my team that ever since I come to Vietnam, I only know like a 100 meter radius around the office because I always just book a hotel near it and just go to the office every day. <laughs> Are there any things that you really like about Vietnam, like a certain place or a certain dish so far? Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the, the food here is amazing. Uh, there's so much food, there's so much local dishes that aren't well-known uh, in other countries that we felt was uh, underrepresented in other places. Um, so when Akiva came over and my friend brought me around, he said, hey, I can bring you to a new place to try a new dish for every day of the month. And you would, you would, we wouldn't run out of options. And, and I, I was like, are there really that much options around? He said, yeah, yeah. Whatever you know about in Singapore, there's just a sliver of what Vietnam has to offer. And and it was true, right? So so that's one thing that that you can never get bored of, which is Vietnamese food, and the people here are just so friendly and and very very easy to work with. But they also have a work ethic that I think is very uh, similar to what the Chinese have, right? So this has also been a pleasure to work with, a, a really pleasant surprise for me. And then outside of work, what do you do? I think I saw online that you do like marathons or triathlons or yeah. duathlons i don't know the terminology <laughs> yes yes actually I, I i have a goal that's on the side which is to complete an ironman uh within the next uh one or two years so i started uh, embarking on this uh earlier this year just as a way to you know have something else to chew on when i'm not working yeah so it's so a travel along so swimming running and cycling how did you get interested in it you know i i my mind turns towards things that uh, I feel like I have an edge on. And for me, I feel like my edge is endurance. So I'm very good at doing things that other people find very boring or very painful and, and just suffering through it. And so for, for me, triathlon sort of fits the bill. Like, it's not hard. I don't need, I don't need special talent to do it. I'm not the best runner. I, I, I was in track and view in, in school. And I remember being the last of the runner, runners. They put me in pole up because uh, I have no other self natural talent, right? But then combined together, I think what you really just need is discipline and putting in the hours to train. And that's something that I, I, I'm good at. 
Okay, I see. I learned a lot from you on like about your personal story, tips on how to run business. And I think other people would agree. So I just have one last question for you. And you sort of semi answered this in like a few minutes ago. So you're not allowed to give me that answer for this question. But just to close, outside of work, what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life at any point in time? You could achieve this when you're like 100 years old. <laughs> My ultimate life goal, there's a building desire in me to eventually, you know, go down the spiritual path full time. So my fiance, she, I met her actually at a meditation retreat. Um, and for us, we instantly clicked because both of us really saw the, the value in the spiritual life and spiritual path. So at, at one point in time, I do want to, you know, go back to the, the, the life of a monk because I think there is some beauty in that that can tend to get lost, right, as we pursue entrepreneurship, pursue our careers. So that's definitely one lifetime goal that I do want to achieve eventually. If you want to achieve that, like, what are the steps that you need to take? Is there like a a program that is like a year long or is it like, does it depend on like when they see that you have hit like true peace or something? Because I, I don't know anything about this. I'm just really curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think it starts off with a daily practice, daily meditation practice. I've been trying to step it up. I used to start off with 20 minutes. I try to get it at an hour a day. And once you build up the momentum, like um, I, I also want, I used to start by doing more uh, intensive retreats, right? So I met my wife, uh, sorry, my fiance at a 10-day retreat. So I, I there's an annual practice for us. We go for annual retreats. But over time, we do want to do longer, longer retreats, like 20 days, 30 days, uh, up to a few months. And then I do actually want to go back and do, do what I did when I was younger, which is the short-term ordainment as a monk. Uh, and do that for longer periods of time. Yeah, so that is that is like the progression that I have in mind. Oh, so that's how it works. Okay, well, thank you so much for this yeah. conversation, YC. <laughs> I really enjoyed all of it. I feel like it played like a movie in my head and I learned a lot of things that I didn't even know about. Like I didn't know monks had to shave their eyebrows. <laughs> so I did not learn how long it takes for eyebrows to grow back. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Amanda. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. I think you, you did a research. I really enjoyed the questions. They were really quite thoughtful. So really appreciate the conversation too. Thank you.